Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, welcome again to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Uh, is anyone, oh, actually let me introduce everyone first. So uh, we'll go around the room and introduce ourselves, and please not try not to make it a rapid fire Paul Jim. So just pause or say, my name is, to slow things down. My name is Jay Corbett. My name is Tony. My name is Andre. My name is Shonda. My name is Steve. My name is Kay. My name is George. My name is Howard Deport. My name is Tom. My name is George. My name is Richard. I'm Stephen Chan. I'm Max. My name is Bill. My name is Marvin. I'm Alsac. Hello. Is that slow? <laughs> My name is Rich. My name is Michael. My name is Kevin. My name is Robert. <coughs> My name is Karen. My name is Chris. <coughs> My name is Peter. My name is Peter. My name is Dennis. My name is Steve. Anthony. Uh, Jim Stewart. My name is Pat. I'm Jack Duffy. <clears throat> My name is Ray Dyer. I'm Tage Lovia. My name is Harley. My name is David. I'm Bob McMullen. My name is Andreas. Tatuan. My name is Jim. My name is David Axel. My name is Harvey. <coughs> My name is Richard Azzolini. My name is Mark. My name is Jerry Jones. My name is Pepper. My name is Chris. Yeah. Uh, my name is John Wessel. My name is Jim Pearson. Oh, I'm Michael Lanker. Did we do the backgrounds? Yeah. Anyone? Anyone here for the first or second time? So please welcome our newcomers to the social hour afterwards. Uh, we will now hear from our speaker. Um, whose name I will mangle, uh, <laughs> Jürgen Wimlitz. Um, he is a, uh, he's been practicing meditation for 15 years, insight meditation, uh, native of Germany. He came to California in 1992 for postdoctoral work in philosophy. He's a graduate of the Spirit Rock Dedicated Practitioners Program, and he's founded a company in 2003 to help people preserve their life stories. He will give us a talk on memory and mindfulness. Please welcome Jürgen. Hey, everybody. Good being with you here. Thanks, Jay, for giving it a try, at least. <laughs> you know, when I order a coffee, you know, I'll put my name in a restaurant list or something like that. 
Uh, I never give my real name. <laughs> and usually the first person writes it down as like Jerkin or something like that, and the next person reads it, who gets it, you know, reads it as Jack or something, and then you're lost in it. And it's also good, I always come up with something new, there's always a good meter for me to see how I feel that day. You know, when I feel really gothic, I say something like Roderick. You know, you get the idea. Anyways, so good to be with you here. Uh, I expected a small disaster to happen a minute earlier because Howard had instructed me under no circumstances to ever touch this device. And then somebody accidentally turned the phone and said, Hell's gonna break loose here. Um, so, as Jay said, the, the talk is announced as uh, being about mindfulness and memory, and so that's what I'm gonna try. Nice. What is that? Oh, okay. <laughs> I like that sound. Um, as you're probably all well aware of, um, mindfulness is one of the most powerful and, uh, and subtle tools in, uh, in Buddhism, in particular meditation practice. Uh, it's the basis of Buddhist meditation and it's, a, and it's a primary principle in Dharma practice in general. And so the concept of mindfulness, we find it virtually throughout all the Buddhist parts of the system. We find it's part of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's, uh, um, it's part of the Seven Factors of Awakening. It's, uh, you know, you find it everywhere. And it's particularly explicated in the Satipatthana Sutra. So Satipatthana usually is translated as um, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Or as Anala, you said, it, it's more the four ways that mindful, mindfulness manifests, that we can apply mindfulness. You know, the four ways is, I don't know how familiar you are with the text here. The four ways, obviously, are the, the body, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, of mind, and of mind objects or dhammas, right? So, so my, mindfulness is, is somewhat the common currency among all the different Buddhist traditions, be it from the Zen, be it from, from the Tibetan side, from the, from the um, uh, Theravadan side, or wherever you come from. And it, mindfulness in Pali Sati is usually defined or is commonly understood as present time awareness, present tense awareness. So it's reflecting what is, what is present and only what is present right now, what is happening right now with you. Um, <coughs> And then that's really also where the juice of it is, that the mindfulness practice doesn't require any kind of knowledge, it doesn't require any kind of belief system, it doesn't, it doesn't even require a whole lot of preparation. Anybody is able to, to be mindful of wherever you are right now. And that's why in many traditions, uh, I, I grew up doing breath meditation, I don't know what, you know, what, what kind of tradition you grew up with. And the, the only point really of breath meditation is that it, that it, anchors you in the present moment, that it gives you something in your body that you can stay with at that, at that very moment, right? Um, there's really nothing magic, magical about the breath, it's just that, that it has this primary function. Actually, I take it back, there is something magical about the breath, but there is a primary function just keeping us present. So, um, so mindfulness is by definition inextricably linked to our own experience, you know, to whatever comes up right now. Um, and our experience, so goes the theory, is what happens now, right? So we can't, I mean, we may have had experience in the past or we'll have it in the future, 
but be that as it may, we can experience this only as it unfolds in the present moment, in the right now. So now is, the now is, is, is so to speak, the preeminent time in Buddhism, right? We can have experiences of the past, and we can maybe re-experiencing it, but then that re-experience is, is happening in the present moment too. So, so the linkage to, to personal, to our subjective experience, um, links it automatically to the present moment, to the, to the now. And so by contrast, um, when, particularly when we practice meditation, if our mind drifts off and we you know, think about stories, whatever happened in the past or what's supposed to happen in the future, etc., it's considered more or less a distraction. Right? It's, uh, we are leaving the present moment and, and we get lost in thought. You know, I, think, I think it was Ajahn Shah, right, who once when he was asked uh, how he uh, assesses the Western world, he had this short, concise comment. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. So, so being lost in thought is considered, considered a major hindrance to being mindful in the moment. Because the thought can bring us and can, can drift us off anywhere. It can get us anywhere. So what we try to do in mindfulness, we try to come back in the body, into the body, into the present moment and experience whatever is here. That's where the juice is. That's where the aliveness of, of, um, of this practice comes from. Uh, now that, that's pretty straightforward and logical so far, right? And, and I don't mean to suggest that it is not straightforward. It's, I, I think it actually it's, it, it's exactly right. But if we leave it as that, we may lose out a little bit for something, and we lose, may lose out in a respect that for me personally is actually quite important. Um, Jay mentioned in the, in the short interim, in my other life, so to speak, in my professional life, um, I have a lot to do with people's memories and remembrances. So what I do is I talk to folks, I interview them for, you know, whatever, 5, 10, 20 hours, and they talk to me about their lives, you know, what, what are the factors that shape the course of their life, what are memories that are important to them. Uh, they pay tribute to people who were once in their life important, that, that kind of thing. And what I experience when I work with people that way is I'm not, I, don't, I don't see people lost in thought distracted by memories. That's, that's not my experience. It's actually quite the opposite. What I see is people who, whose, whose heart is awakened, who are fully alive. They're full of joy and, and compassion, and particularly when they pay tribute to those who, who were important to them in their past. You know, often when, if we happen to be lucky enough to have a good, you know, good home, uh, when they think about their parents, etc., that people wake up, they are so free and they are so full of life when they talk about that. that that's not lost in thought, that's not distracted, it has a very, very different quality. Um, in fact, it, it always feels to me, rather than being caged into that particular individual memory, it feels to me that they are freed into something much bigger than they are. Um, there's also a tremendous cathartic power to reminiscence, to, to remembering. At least there can be a cathartic pow power to that. Not to mention, you know, many theories held that our, our capacity to remember and to, to anticipate is what makes us human to some extent, what distinguishes us from the natural realm. So, 
If we say that the now and the that being in the present moment is our primary focus in mindfulness practice, um, I would suggest to not modify that, but maybe to expand it, to expand that a little bit. Um, and I think I don't need to. I don't even need to leave the uh, the Buddhist framework for that. If we look at at, uh, at the Buddha's life, we see that remembrances and recollections actually occur at very, very crucial junctures in his life. I'm talking in particular about two instances. Um, the one is when um, is the discovery of the middle path. You know, the Buddha as a young prince, he left his home where he had great sex and great food and great everything, a life of complete hedonism and indulgence. He leaves it after he sees the, you know, the heavenly messengers, becomes a wandering ascetic, uh, for six years, and after six years, he essentially pauses, he halts, and reflects back on the progress that he has made in these past six years. And he realizes he hasn't. It has not brought him the freedom, the liberation he was seeking. Um, and as he's reflecting as, as to what has worked and what hasn't, all of a sudden, a memory pops up in him. It's a memory about uh, the Buddha being a boy and sitting in his in his father's garden on a rose up apple tree, being in complete ease, complete comfort and ease, um, and falling into spontaneous meditation. And it's that memory that provides him with the insight uh, into uh, into what would later be termed as the middle path, right? The middle path between between indulgence and uh, and um, ascetism. And the other, the other story, the, the other juncture where, where memory plays a crucial role is, um, of course, at the night of the Buddha's awakening itself. You know that night is, what is it, divided into four watches? Um, I think a watch is like three hours or something, right? Is it, is it three hours? And the first watch, so the first part of the Buddha's awakening, you know, you know what happened? What, what happened is he remembered all his previous lives. First, the immediate previous life, then the first, then the five or ten lives before the, the, the present one, and then all his previous lives, way, way back. And so he has perfect, he gained perfect clarity and insight into previous lives. And even if you happen to not believe into previous lives and karmic uh, reoccurrences, etc., it's very easy to, to translate that into perfect insight of our personal lives, of our personal narrative. You know, in a way, every, you know, every day we wake up, we start a little, in some sense we start a new life, right? So he, had, he gained perfect knowledge of his personal narrative. So again, memory has a very cru is, is placed here at a very crucial juncture in his, in his personal story. So, and if, if we look at the concept of sati itself, sati is mindfulness, right? That's usually how it's translated. If we look at the concept of sati itself, sati is usually remembered, is usually translated as um, to remember, it's usually translated as mindfulness. But it has actually a second, second connotation. Um, and the connotation is to remember. It's related to the verb sarati, to remember. And... Um, we see that in different in different forms. Actually, you know what, guys? I, I interrupt myself because I wanna 
insert at least one little story. With so I, I talk when I interview folks, right? There's some sometimes it's so lovely and so sweet when they go into their memories, and sometimes it's actually hysterical. I told friends of friends of me uh, here. I was just last week. I was in Florida interviewing a lady, um, 80 years old, grew up in real dirt poverty in in, the, in Central Florida on a little farm outside a village uh, about seven miles away from the next little village which was about an hour away from the next little town. Uh, no electricity, no running water, you know, they did their clothing made from feed sacks, that, 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 that level of poverty, right? And uh, she had very sweet memories, actually a very, very happy person. Um, it was one story that was hysterical, that's what I wanted to, to share. So her dad had an accident when he was about 30, 31, right? Um, he, uh, he had a mule. The mule would usually, you know, pull the plow and whatnot. And, um, and he was on a wagon. The, wa the mule freaked out because of a snake or something. And the wagon flipped over and, and smashed his foot and his, um, you know, and his lower leg. And so the leg got amputated, you know, from underneath the knee. And he got a peg leg. And, and, uh, and I'm so, this sorry has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I was just so funny because I just heard it. So you got that peg leg, right? But buying shoes for these folks is a huge deal. It's expensive, right? That was one of the major expenses that they had. So, um, and of course you can't buy individual shoes. And he was bummed out that he always had to buy a pair of shoes when he really needed only one. So he actually found somebody in the neighboring county that also had a peg light, but on the other side. <laughs> and the two would swap shoes. It's, it's hysterical. And, and these stories, they're sometimes so touching. They're so sweet. They're so down to earth. Um, anyways, I just needed to, needed to insert that here. Um, so the so so the noun sati mindfulness is is related to a verb sarati to remember, and there are several ways that uh, remembrance or recollection actually enters the mindfulness process. One of the more obvious way is you know uh, to remember the teachings, like Ananda, you know the Buddha's follower, is is credited with this amazing memory of of recollecting all of the Buddha's teachings pretty much down to the word. That's a pretty obvious sense. In, um, in a different sense, in Buddhism there are several lists called the recollections, um, essentially recollecting qualities of the Buddha, and if we keep those in mind, they are considered to have awakening powers. So to remember here means, means just to call to mind, to, to bring mindfulness to something that already exists. And, um, and, and of course, what, what's funky about that is... Um, we can bring mindfulness in a way only to something that had originally mindfulness at its root. What I mean by that is, if you do something completely unconscious, it's very hard to, to, uh, to recall it later on. So doing something mindfully right now in the present moment also means that you will remember it later on much clearer, much, you have much more easy, uh, easy access to it. So in a way it's the old thing of, uh, you know, Finding what you have never lost, arriving what you have never left, that kind of thing. But the remembrance also comes in in, in, in a much richer sense if we think about something else. And it's very, very simple and very subtle. 
We have to remember to come back to the present moment, to the now. How exactly that process, that memory, that remembrance happens is a good question and maybe one for a different talk. But we do know one thing, that, that the capacity of waking up from whatever reverie, ravery, how do you pronounce that, reverie, we are in right now, the capacity to wake and come back to the present moment is a function of memory too. And one of my teachers um, actually defined enlightenment <coughs> as the capacity to remember faster and more often. And that's all there is to it. If we haven't practiced mindfulness so much, you know, we drift off very easily and then maybe 10 minutes later or 20 minutes later or whatever it is, we remember to come back. The more, the more you practice, the more automatic this, this coming back will happen. I would like to point out something else about memory that for me is actually in a way even juicier. So when we talk about memory like in, in the in memorizing remembrance in the sense of coming back, it's not so much the memory of the past, right, of our lives or so. But I personally I believe that our past life, our, ex, our um, experience is a rich field of inquiry and that our Dharma practice and our mind, mindfulness practice actually benefits hugely if we can bring that into our practice instead of just sitting on the cushion. And what I mean by that is the following. There are several ways of, of um, remembering. And you can easily, there's a remembering with the, with the mind and there's a remembering with the heart. And you, you can, it, there's nothing mysterious about that. It's very simple. Think about um, what did you do on your birthday three years ago? Right? See, see if you, how you remember that. Okay, you think, what was it? How was that? How, how old was it? Who was there? Da, da, da. You think about it, right? And now, by contrast, bring up the image of somebody who was close to you in your past, or even right now. Just bring up, just bring up that image of that person and sense into the energy of that. Sense, you know, maybe send that person your loving kindness or, you know. It's a completely different kind of remembering. It's a little closer to what I call remembering with the heart. You know what I mean? It's not so much the recollecting of data, it's more sensing in. It's something that is, it's, it's, it's an inquiry with a soft focus, so to speak. It's more a sensing than a sharp, than a narrowing down on a specific event. Um, and this kind of remembrance, this kind of memory, uh, ha has a tremendously creative potential. What I mean by creative potential is it, it, it brings a lot of chords to swing in us. I don't know if that is an English idiom. You know what I mean? It's like this. There's our heart. There's our emotions. There's our mind. There's, everything is involved. Everything is, it comes, comes to life in that. There's a, there's, there's a good creative potential. It's, it's, it's not... Not an accident that in Greek mythology, the muses, who are considered the source of creative inspiration, the muses are the daughters of the goddess of memory. Memnozuna. I don't know how you pronounce that in English, Memnozuna. So my suggestion is that we try to use this kind of creative capacity for inquiry. 
And to, so, so part of part of how that works is obviously we do not want to get lost in thought, as we said in the beginning. Um, part of how it works is that we that we develop a capacity to remember with our heart and to stay mindful while it happens. Um, it's quite interesting to see when you have this kind of remembrance going, this kind of reminiscing going on. Uh, what is your body doing? Staying mindfully in your body and sensing that energy is part of that. Is part of that kind of inquiry. <coughs> probably most important about this whole subject for me is when you when you do remember with your heart you're tapping into something that is at once tremendously personal and goes goes way beyond beyond the personal what i mean by that is you tap into an energy that is that is yours but you're only tapping into it that particularly when you you know um, when you have feelings of gratitude or of joy, hopefully not too many negative feelings, but when you, that you tap into that joy, you know what I'm saying with that. Um, I don't know if I can make it so much clearer. Um, the the act of remembering sets something in motion that is not limited to the content of the particular of the particular memory. And to tap into that, that which it sets in motion, to stay with that and feel that in the present moment, I think is a tremendously rich experience. So yeah, it is a memory, but we can be mindful of the memory and use what is channeled through that memory. I had, I remember I had a client, again, it doesn't fit really in here, but, but you get the idea. Um, I had a client a couple of years ago, um, nice guy, he, uh, he knew he was dying. Uh, I got a call on a Monday morning, I was asked in, the guy asked me, can, 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 can you do the last story of my dad? I said, sure. Um, went immediately to the hospital. Um, the first thing, Francesco Frank was his name, the first thing he said was, um, he shoot out, he was in an intensive care unit, he shoot out all the people there. Um, he took my hand. He didn't even ask for my name. You know, when you're at that point in your life, uh, people cut cut right through all the BS. That it doesn't matter anymore. It's, it was amazing. So I sit down next to his bed. The guy takes my has never seen me before. Takes my hand and says, "You know, let me tell you, life is suffering, and I had a good life. Let me tell you about it." And then he started. And, and he told about his life, a very interesting story, a sweet guy. He told his life with an intensity that even I'm, I'm kind of used to that, but even I was surprised by it. And then on Tuesday, the following day, they transferred him home, essentially to let him die there, pancreatic cancer. They let him, uh, to let him die there. On Tuesday, I saw him again. And, um, and in the midst of, you know, whatever we were talking about, he all of a sudden stopped and he looked at me and said, Oh, did you know that my son's wife, that she's pregnant? I said, oh, no, I didn't know that. Uh, I said, congratulations, so you're going, to be, you're going to be grandfather. That's wonderful. And he looked at me and said, I'm never going to see that grandchild, won't I? And you know, what, what do you say, right? Didn't say anything. And then, you know, and then he said, uh, and he said, you know, but if you do what you, what you say you do, then, you know, of course that child will know that I was thinking about him or her. 
So often when we... Is that, is that somebody who is lost in thought? Is that somebody... No. He's very mindful and his intention behind this whole thing was to make it to form a connection with the future. He wanted that, that unborn being to know that somebody from his or her past was thinking about it. So it's a very, very um, rich energy we can tap into. Uh, we can tap into when we do that. There's a very transformative power to that too. Um, it's a bit like when we do metta practice. I'm sure you're all familiar with, with metta practice, right? When we do metta practice, we may do that for one person or we may do it for a group of people. But in doing so, our whole perspective, everything around us, changes and transforms. There's a poem here that I found that I actually really like. It's by a guy called Juan Jamón Jiménez. It's a it's a bit of love poem, but but you'll see you'll see why I'm bringing it here. <coughs> I unpaddled you like a rose to see your soul, and I didn't see it. But everything around, horizons of lands and of seas, everything out to the infinite was filled with a fragrance, enormous and alive. Want to hear that again? Mm -hmm. I unpaddled you like a rose to see your soul, and I didn't see it. But everything around, horizons of lands and of seas, everything out to the infinite, was filled with a fragrance, enormous and alive. When we do this kind of remembering with the heart, when we do this kind of inquiry, mindfully, we may not find, as Jimenez says, the soul of ourselves. But in the process, something will happen. Something that affects all, everything around us. I think I'll leave it at that here. Thank you. We have plenty of time for questions. Please. Um, uh, how would you characterize then that time, right as you're falling asleep or as you're coming out of sleep, when you're very, um, um, you're in a, a, a thought process when your mind goes to a place that you may avoid during the rest of the day? <coughs> while you're dreaming, you're you're, you're you're not as concrete, perhaps, in terms mm -hmm. of relating to your actual life. So what again, how would well, I characterize I, I, that I, time? How do, you, <laughs> how do you characterize that? Is, is that? is that mindfulness, or is it, um, or is it the opposite of mindfulness? Or have, or have you even thought mm, about that? It's an interesting question. I'm not so sure. It's, it may be a rich field when you can bring mindfulness to it. I'm not sure, so, so sure it's per se mindful. Um, well, I know for myself, I find it difficult in that process to exercise that any control because I'm not either falling asleep or coming out of sleep. You're you're sort of out of control, and so yeah. it's difficult to grab a hold of it and, and make it informative. Yeah, you know what? I, I only can 
brainstorm with you, so to speak. I don't have a good yeah. cookie-cutter answer. Um, what I find difficult and interesting about that particular experience in the morning and these, transi these transitory experiences, often we try to fix the content. We try to, you know, we want to remember it later on, so we'll try to let it go and remember it at the same time, and the effort of trying to remember it actually gets in the way. Right? It's very often when we when we use our when we do breath meditation, we observe it and we just want to let it go, let it find its own rhythm. But by observing it, we actually start manipulating it. So it's something similar. I think if you're able to be mindful of what is going on without reining it in, that's the trick in doing that. But I'm also not sure that I'm always cap capable of doing that. Yeah, please. Occasionally, I have this experience where I'm focusing on my breath. And when I'm focusing on my breath, things arise and fall away. And it isn't as if I am reaching out to them, but they kind of arise with their own power. And when I stay in touch with the breath, it's as if there's a sweetness to that process, which is an expansion mm -hmm. of the experience. It doesn't alter the actual process itself in terms of the arising and falling away. It's just that there's another, it's almost like a texture, another texture to the experience. So and I am then left with a more expanded field of awareness. Sounds, sounds great. For me when yeah. That. yeah, sounds great. Good for you. <laughs> well, it's actually not good for me because it isn't anything I can do. But the piece of it is that the practicing of meditating allows for that possibility. But it isn't something I can consciously direct. Yeah, and, and most certainly. And, and it, it's good also that if you don't expect it, because as soon as you start expecting something cool to happen, I mean, as you probably have all experienced, it's not going to happen. So. Sometimes it's not so cool. Sometimes what it brings up has elements of pain or challenge or difficulty or sadness or sorrow or grief. I mean, it's all of a piece. It's not mm. like one is more prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Please. The, uh, as, as a man who's getting older, I do know and have met with seniors at IMS and also at Spirit Rock, and I think that uh, the impression I get is that people prefer to think we don't exist. That is, if... Uh, memory is enlightenment, then we're just going to lose our enlightenment. If memory is so closely related to uh, good thought patterns and things like that, we could lose them. Most of us will lose them to some extent, some to the extreme. That's one reason seniors have stopped going to uh, uh, IMS and to uh, Spirit Rock to a certain extent, because I think it would make people nervous. Uh, because people don't want this to happen to them, but it will. It's, it's almost certain, despite all the work that's being done to reverse memory loss and everything like that, that you're going to lose it. So my opinion would be that take advantage of this as a strong teaching for impermanence. Your memory is impermanence. Your enlightenment is impermanent. You're just going to lose everything. You may lose it in the uh, least kind kind of way where you just... Uh, it's easy to say there's nobody there, but on the other hand, there's something there. So in a certain sense, you become a something, rather than a human being or an enlightened human being or something like that. 
I personally, uh, I think. Of course, a lot of us are getting older, and sooner or later, you know, you're going to have to have workshops for people who have Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> How do you run it? <laughs> yeah, I think it's not that we may lose it to some degree or other over time. We will lose it all. Everybody does. Um, but one thing, I don't know if people are afraid of that or not. I don't know what people think. But, but I, th I think it's also good to be at least to at least consider the possibility that we're projecting. They may actually not be afraid at all. It may just all be going on in your mind. I'm not saying it is. All I'm saying it's a possibility, right? Maybe maybe you just think you that this is what people what folks what folks what folks think. It may not be so. I think the large amount of research does suggest that people are afraid of getting old. Right. So then then you would need to see in your own practice what does that mean to you? what you'd anticipate other people is going on right now and how does it affect you and stay mindful well, of the... I hope the... That's always a good that's one. That's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please. Uh, is there not a danger by... Um, Remembering your uh, previous parts of your life, that it, you end up creating a story around it. I know for myself, for many years, it was a very sad story. My teenage and parts of my childhood, and I kind of projected that into my current life situation. It became limiting in many ways, and I had this construct of a creation of who I was based on some of these memories. And of course, I tend to. For me, you also see the glass half empty, so I would mm. pull out the worst memories, and that's mm. kind of how my whole life story mm. became a definition of that. And, and you talk a lot about remembering the past and how it really plays into mm. becoming forward in the present, but for me, it was more like a trap, I think, in that way, because it limited uh, my perception of what I was able to do in the present. I think mm. it's taken me a long time to overcome mm. the years of that. Mm. So, that's a, it's, a, it, it's definitely a very important point that you raised there. Um, I'm saying something that I actually did not want to say. Sean and I talked about it earlier. I, I did not want to go there, but I do it now anyways because it, I just can't help it. <laughs> I wanted to say that already when you talked earlier here. Um, personally, I think that we hardly remember anything. And what I mean by that is I think actually nearly everything that we remember is a story. So what I mean by that is, and it may just be me, and I'm definitely leave, leaving any Buddhist framework here, so... I don't think that I remember, for example, feelings. I remember, oh, that felt really bad then, or I didn't like that person, or I really liked that person, or something like that. But what I remember is more a label. Sometimes, say for example, when something really embarrassing happened, and I think back of that incident, it still triggers that same emotion. But then I have that emotion, that feeling in that moment. That's not the old one that I remember. I have a really hard time remembering an old feeling. I remember only the label that I had from that feeling. That's what I remember. Oh, that, was, that really sucked. That was really bad. Oh, that was great. But the actual emotion is not there. So I think to a large extent, um, what we remember is indeed a story, a story that we agreed upon at some, at some point. And sometimes that's a great story. And sometimes that's a story that we are caged in, that we're boxed in for the rest of our life. What I think is so great about inquiry, 
And it's the main motivation for why I suggested that here. If we do this kind of um, inquiry, we can actually, to some extent, see whether that story is true or not. Because you can tap back into that energy. It's not, you know, it's not, you don't, you can, you can do the record thing and go over the same story over and over. Oh, and then he said this, and then that happened, and th- yada yada. Or you can tap in an energy and actually distance yourself from it and observe it. You can, for example, if it was a sad memory, you can develop compassion for yourself. Oh, poor me. There's nothing wrong with poor me. Or, or, or poor that person, or, or whatever. But doing that inquiry allows us to actually go get beyond the story that we have fixated in our minds. Thanks for the question. Please. Yeah, thank you for a very provocative talk. It's, it's just a, well, it's the core of what I find interesting about human consciousness, <laughs> this relationship of memory to being present. Um, and I have so many things I want to say. Um, what, what this gentleman just said, I, I remember at a college reunion, people talked about how at the beginning they had a long story, but by the end of the reunion they were down, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, the lifestyle was reduced to, you know, I'm fine, uh, which I found uh, wonderful and, and, and fascinating. Um, also, about a question about um, falling asleep. Um, I studied hypnosis in college, and they had us. Um, pick a, a, a favorite memory, and they hypnotized us uh, to go back to this pleasant memory. And the quality of detail was absolutely astonishing. It was like the emotional tone was the container of the detail. Um, and um, well, I, I, I think we're we're Africans untold with cosmic <coughs> mysteries of just was the myth of mind. But um, I really appreciate your. Um, Welcome. I had a, I had an acquaintance who, who was a hypnotherapist, or I still I still have an acquaintance who is a hypnotherapist, and he always uh, defined hypnosis as um, focused relaxation. Now, what is focused relaxation? That's meditation, as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you. Thank you. Please. Just to, to follow up on the issue about being a story, some years ago when I was around 50, I went to a, uh, a weekend by the Omega Institute, which is the eastern version of Esalen, on conscious aging, and it was the first thing that I was ever willing to go to that was you know, around aging. And one of the people there was somebody named Mary Catherine Bates, Mary Catherine Bateson, who's the daughter of a very famous anthropologist and and. and father was a philosopher, Mm -hmm. and she had us do an exercise in which we were paired up with someone, and we had two minutes, first of all, to tell the other person the story of our life as if it were totally meaningful, meaningless, Mm -hmm. full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And then the second exercise was to tell the story of our life as if it had a path, a meaning, a purpose, leading inevitably and wonderfully to the present moment. And... The striking thing, I mean, this, this was you know, 15 years ago, I still remember it vividly and how we were all able to instantly do both of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, very interesting uh, uh, little experiment. I read something, uh, it's a bit parallel, I, I find it fascinating. Um, <clears throat> there's a researcher on aging, uh, 
he's actually pretty old himself by now, James Biron, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, um, he um, reports of a study that was conducted in uh, the south of England a couple of years ago where they had two test groups um, um, one test group was uh, both of both both of the groups were asked to write I think about 20 or minutes or half an hour a day about their lives right the one group was asked about to write about what is their favorite TV show where would they like to travel fun <coughs> things they did as a child <coughs> pretty trivial things the other group was asked to to add to write every day about um, traumatic experiences junctures in their life uh, most meaningful influences that shaped the course of their life, that kind of thing. They did that for a couple of months, and then they compared the two things, and they did a funky thing. They actually punctured the skin with a needle, right? It wasn't a big deal. They punctured the skin of both test groups, of the participants in both test groups. That's quite amazing. There was a significantly higher, better healing rate of those who talked about meaningful things than those who talked about trivialities. All other factors are being equal. So that makes a huge, huge difference what we choose to focus on. Yeah. Thanks for uh, uh, mentioning that, yeah. Do we have, do we have time? You, you wanted yeah. something. I'm, I'm happy to go on, but you, you want question. One more question then. Please. How do you address uh, mindfulness, which is living the moment, and uh, in the context of having a dream, uh, being able to create, being able to um, make a difference uh, while living in sort of in the present, right? Yeah. Sort of like oh, you mean about the future? Dream not in terms of dreaming, but in terms of having a vision right. of, of something vision that you would like. Future, making a difference, being creating something different, and still being mindfulness. Yeah. Um, I think the kind of classic Buddhist reply, and I actually agree with it 100%, um, is um, um, engagement without being attached. So engagement without attachment. So meaning it's wonderful to have a weird vision. And I think, I actually think that lives can be somewhat poor if we don't have any kind of vision to live for, if there is not something... Um, and it's great to dedicate yourself to a cause. I mean, people, to, to different degree, people need causes in their lives. But I personally think it's a very healthy thing. It's wonderful to do that. The problem starts, the problem starts occurring when you, when you get too attached to the outcome of your engagement. If you think it needs to happen, if it doesn't happen, then you're all depressed about it. Even if you get depressed about it, it's fine. As long as you can always stay mindful as to your own response to, your, to the actions and their outcome. So I think the basic principle of mindfulness is actually that it is actualized in the present moment. It's not touched by that. It's actually all the richer when you apply it to your own visions and, and, your, and your emotional responses to the outcome. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Would you, uh, would you mind hanging out in the... Uh, for a while in the lobby, yeah, no, no, if sure, anyone else sure. has questions. Yeah. <coughs> so now we do announcements. Are there any announcements? <coughs> yes, there's an update of the uh, GBF directory by the Donable. Feel free to take a copy. Yeah, our speaker next week will be Larry uh, Yang. And, uh, 
Larry will be addressing uh, themes on forgiveness uh, next week. Jurgen is turning to light having you here this day. Did you bring some folks from your sangha? Here? Yes, at least one folk from my sangha. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this lady here. <laughs> Thank you, Hart. Appreciate it. Other announcements? Um, on April 18th, we're going to have a one-day um, long meditation retreat here. So um, put it on your calendar. The format is still being... What day do we do? It's a Saturday. Oh, okay. We're still playing with the format. So, um, yeah. Any other announcements? Okay, so I... Uh, I would normally introduce the host, but that is me today. So um, there are tea, there's tea. If you have tea, please wash your cup. And I also baked some chocolate chip scones. So uh, I will be bringing around the Donable to uh, uh, support the sangha. We ask for a donation of five to eight dollars, depending on what you can afford. <clears throat> and uh, there is a sign-up sheet for the newsletter if you'd like to receive our newsletter either via email or uh, in regular mail. And there's also a group, if you hang out until 1230, that goes to lunch somewhere in the neighborhood afterwards. So that right around the time that I'm chasing everyone out with a pitchfork trying to show people lunch. <laughs> I think that's all. So... Let us gather in a circle for the final meditation. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be freed from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.